This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, etc. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get The Best Erotica of 2011. Or how about Orgasmic, Erotica for Women, if that's your thing. Otherwise, you can get Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, or you can get How to Meditate by Pema Chodron. Any one of these titles can be yours. Any book that Audible has can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps the program. I get a few dollars. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we are. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the program. This is the experience. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. My guest today is Caroline Levitt. She is the author of nine novels, the most recent of which has been her big breakout uh, it happened on her ninth book. It's a, it's a nice story of persistence and resilience and tenacity and ultimately triumph. Uh, it's a novel called Pictures of You, and it's available right now from Algonquin. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's been through multiple printings. It made multiple best of lists. Uh, you name it. So uh, Caroline and I are going to be talking about all of that in just a moment. Uh, otherwise, uh, what is there to discuss? So I was having a conversation uh, earlier this week, I believe about famous recluses. You know, I find that sort of interesting, uh, especially when it happens in the arts, you know, like uh, if you become accidentally famous because you happen to be present at some sort of cataclysmic event, uh, you know, or something, you know, but, but in reality, you're just like a natural recluse. That's one thing. But if you're an artist, uh, of some kind and you go out seeking a wide audience for your work and then you get that audience, and uh, that audience naturally becomes interested in you, but you're not interested in communicating with them uh, or with people in general. Like that to me is an odd set of circumstances, you know, to be a famous recluse. It's just like a contradiction in terms. And uh, yet it happens, uh, you know, and, and in literature, uh, of course, I think the most famous example is uh, J.D. Salinger, uh, the late J.D. Salinger. Uh, but then, you know, in other arts, you have like John Hughes, the film director, uh, the late John Hughes. And, uh, you know, he sort of famously disappeared onto his farm. And uh, Stanley Kubrick was, you know, fairly reclu uh, reclusive. Sly Stone, uh, Greta Garbo uh, was a big recluse for the last half of her life. And, uh, you know, like musicians like Sid Barrett and Lauryn Hill. And, you know, the list goes on. And, uh, I, you know, I guess I should mention that no two recluses are alike. You know, I think people have their, their individual reasons for wanting to, uh, you know, uh, pull away, you know, retreat from society 
And uh, I think what got my brain on this, uh, you know, on this particular topic was an email that I got from a listener a few days ago. He was asking me to try to get Don DeLillo uh, on the program. But of course, Don DeLillo is, is uh, like famously averse to any kind of public appearance. And, uh, you know, I don't think he's totally reclusive, you know, like he's not like Salinger uh, or Thomas Pynchon uh, or is it Pinchon? I never know. But, you know, like Thomas Pynchon is a real recluse. You know, he's really like hard to track down. I don't think Don DeLillo is quite at his level. Um, you know, like Thomas Pynchon is like the, the Loch Ness monster of American letters. You know, I'm not, I'm not even sure if he really exists. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also worth, uh, contemplating, you know, contemporary times and, and whether it's even possible to be a famous literary, re you know, recluse anymore. That's a pretty tough trick to pull. Uh, and frankly, it's a huge luxury, you know, I think it would be sort of great to be a famous literary recluse because, you know, on the one hand you're making a living and, uh, presumably your books are, are fancy and critically acclaimed and, uh, widely beloved. And, uh, you just kind of live, uh, you know, and do your own thing in reclusion, you know, and refuse to be photographed and refuse to do any press whatsoever, which therefore heightens public interest in you and increases, you know, like the sense of personal mystery around your work. And, uh, you know, I think it, it makes you, uh, I think it makes people, uh, believe that you're a genius, you know, when you're a recluse or it improves the odds of that happening. You know, the more reclusive you are, if you've made some good art, uh, the more likely people will consider that art to be the work of a mad genius, you know, people, you know, just like the person who made this is just too sensitive and too brilliant. And, you know, the world is too painful, you know, all, all he can do or all she can do is just make this art in reclusion, in seclusion, you know, I don't know. So anyway, I'm not inclined to ask authors, uh, with a well-known aversion to human beings. Uh, I'm not inclined to ask them to be on the show. You know, if that's what they want to do, if, if those are their druthers, uh, I think you've got to respect that, you know, I think you've got to respect, uh, someone's boundaries. So, uh, and then, you know, it, you start to ask yourself the question, like, is it better to be a recluse? Is there something like dangerous or uh, morally suspect about a writer or, or, you know, or an artist, uh, you know, communicating publicly. And, uh, you know, I certainly hope not. Uh, otherwise I'm fucked, but, uh, you know, I just think, uh, you know, if, if I go around, you know, if I, if I turn it over in my mind, uh, enough, I think I ultimately just come to the, you know, down to where I think that it's a personal preference. You know, that's what it is. It's what you like to do. It's what makes you comfortable. It's what, you know, it's what's fun for you. And, uh, you know, otherwise it's a gray area. It's just, uh, it's yet another gray area. It's just uh, another example of having to, you know, evaluate complexity and make the best, you know, best decision that you can. And, uh, Speaking of gray areas and uh, evaluating complexity, this morning uh, I was out walking my dog. Uh, I have a dog named Walter. He's a French bulldog, and uh, he's a cute dog. You know, he's, I, you know, he, I, I, th I think he's cute. He's kind of like frog-like. If, you, if you've never seen a French bulldog, he's kind of toad-like. And uh, I live in Los Angeles, and uh, there are, you know, unfortunately, uh, a lot of homeless people here, a lot of mental illness, a lot of human tragedy at street level. And so I'm out walking Walter and I'm listening to uh, music on headphones. I'm listening to this band called a uh, biosphere. It's like, uh, just like, you know, sounds, it's uh, ambient music, ambient music, you know? So it's just like this, uh, this album that when I listen to it, I sort of feel like I'm on another planet, which I like. And, uh, so I'm walking Walter and I'm sort of zoning out and I'm kind of lost in my own thoughts. And I come to this corner 
and uh, there's a homeless woman sitting on the sidewalk, and she's not in good shape. You know, she's filthy, and she's barefooted, and her feet are black, and you know, I think she was strung out on something. Like she looked like she was kind of strung out on speed, and it was just a bad situation. And uh, you know, she she looked crazy, but uh, but like happy crazy, and she was smiling. It's like this crazy, uh, you know, expression on her face. And I, I couldn't really hear what she was saying because I had my headphones on, but I could see that she was talking gibberish at my dog who of course, uh, you know, doesn't know the difference. He's just happy for any kind of attention at all. Uh, you know, like, you know, Walter doesn't judge unlike me. So I'm standing there and I'm watching all this happen and I'm waiting for the light to change. And this homeless woman is reaching out, smiling and it's clear that she wants to embrace my dog. And uh, Walter, of course, is like pulling on the leash and wiggling over to her. And before I can stop it, he starts licking her in the face. And she's like crouched over and like kissing him. And, uh, you know, it creates this conundrum. It creates a moral dilemma. And uh, I wind up pulling Walter away from her, <laughs> like somewhat forcefully, you know, like with the, with the leash. And, uh, you know, I, I was grossed out by the whole thing and I was trying to be nice about it. And, uh, I tried to like pull this, you know, this reverse psychology thing where I pretended, uh, that I was like really apologetic and that Walter had somehow inconvenienced her. You know, I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. You know, <laughs> like he, he gets so excited. Please forgive me for the intrusion. But of course I know that this woman doesn't care. And you know, that in fact, she, uh, desperately wants to make out with him. And so then the light changes and, uh, you know, like I immediately turn and walk away. Like I say a quick goodbye and like off we go and I'm pulling Walter. And then, uh, as I continue, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like thinking about the situation and I find that it's confusing and that the moral dilemma that it presents, uh, you know, makes me wonder, uh, you know, about what kind of person I am, you know, telling this poor homeless woman, uh, essentially that she's too filthy to pet my dog, you know, like this poor lady who clearly leads a very difficult life and is starved for affection of any kind. And, uh, I couldn't even let her like cuddle with my dog for like a minute, you know, like, what is that? And like, what's the right thing to do? That's what I was thinking. You know, like on the one hand, I've got like a young child, you know, I don't, I don't want my dog like t tongue kissing a homeless, like meth addict and then coming home and like licking my daughter or getting on my couch or whatever it is, you know? And so it's like, is that wrong? Am I being cruel? Am I failing to recognize uh, our shared humanity? You know, because when you get down into the microbiology of it, it can be hard to parse. You know, my dog licks weird stuff all the time. He's walking around in a city. He's stepping in stuff. He's already got germs all over him. You know, so what are a few more? Um, maybe that, you know, maybe that's a solid argument. I don't know. You know, am I, you know, is it just like a matter of me being a cold bastard uh, am I, is there something I, you know, I'm missing? It, it sort of messes with my head and, uh, you know, I've got to navigate this stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's confusing. Life is messy. And, you know, I just wanted to walk my dog around the block. Just wanted to go, you know, stroll around and listen to some ambient music and zone out. And, uh, all of a sudden I'm questioning my moral center, you know, all of a sudden I'm lost in the depths of a psycho spiritual quagmire. <laughs> Hey, okay, we're good to go. Okay. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Uh, so how are you today? I'm really good. I actually, I'm, I'm sort of laughing because I just, I obsessively check my reviews on Amazon 
and I just saw, I just got this review, which was a one star from this woman, and she gave it a one star because she said it was the most unwholesome book she had ever read in her life, and that the language was so foul, she couldn't get past the first page, and she hadn't read anymore. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Your book, your no, book? Yeah, my book, my book. Which is clearly just like, you know, pornographic. It's, it's filthy. <laughs> I know, I know. I guess, I mean, everybody has the right to read whatever they want and to have their own opinions about whatever book they read. But, you know, I looked at, you can, they always have that thing where you can see what other books the person has re- reviewed. And the only other book this person had reviewed was um, this book, I forget the title of it, it, was something like Swept Away. And the subtitle was A Christian Romance. So I kept thinking, well, if that's the kind of books that she likes to read, like, what did she think when she read the description of my book? Why would she think it was wholesome? So now I want to get a t-shirt with the word unwholesome on it and sort of wear it around. Yeah, that should be, you should have that blurb added to the back of your book. You know? I think so too. I think that would probably help sell copies and you so, know, gain wider audience. <laughs> so this actually uh, brings up a couple of interesting questions. First of all, like I, I think it's, it's sort of nice to hear somebody admit that they actually check their Amazon reviews, you know, and just be open about that. Like how often are we talking? Like you doing this like uh, daily? Um, <laughs> Embarrassed to like a lot. I do it a lot. I I try not to do it more than like three times a day now. And that's you know after the book has been out a year. But when the book first came out, I would say that I was checking it. Oh. Jeez, at least every hour. And, you know, most of my friends who are writers do the same, even the ones who admit that they don't. We all do. Well, what, and what was your, what's your highest ranking so far? Do you, do you know that? Um, you mean forever since it started? Well, when the book first came out, um, the highest ranking was 198, and it stayed there for four days, Holy which shit. was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Now it's, um, I'm not sure what it is in the in the hard bank. Oh yes, I am a mine. I know exactly what it is. It's like thirty thousand now in the heart in the um, regular edition, and in Kindle it's something like two hundred, which is pretty good. Okay, so do, do you have any idea what this what these numbers mean? Like what they translate? Yeah, to? I think they I think they basically mean nothing. To tell you the truth, I once had this um, when my number got down to one ninety eight. I called my publicist all excited and said, oh, "I'm one ninety eight, and I think there was actually three hours when I was number two. And she said, you know, Carolyn, we don't even look at those numbers because they don't really mean anything. All it means is that like, somebody might have bought 10 copies of your book in five minutes, and that sort of translates into what might look like thousands and thousands of sales, but it's not. The only numbers they pay attention to are the book scan numbers. Um, I think those numbers mean a lot more to uh, readers and people who go on Amazon because they look at the numbers and they think, oh, it's, it's you know, it's 500 or 1,000 or whatever it is, so it must be a good book and I should check it out. But I don't think they really mean that much. Huh. Well, yeah, but 198, I mean, that's good. That's like that. You know. That was amazing. That was amazing. That never happened. Uh, okay. Well, and so, you know, kind of uh, along the same lines, you know, with regard to Amazon and then Amazon uh, reviews, you know, peer reviews or customer reviews, you know, you work as a book critic. You write uh, right. book criticism for what, the Boston Globe? Is that right? I do for the Boston Globe and for People Magazine, and I just started doing some stuff for the New York Times, but that's not a, that's not a regular gig. Okay. So does this, I mean, does this, the work that you've done there make it any easier when one of your books doesn't get a good review? I mean, are you, are you better at it? You, do, you have, do you have a different perspective, or do you, are you equally as, like, crushed? <laughs> um, I am 
better at it. I mean, you know, the Amazon reviews are a whole different thing, but in terms of reviews in, in newspapers, yeah, I take them I take them really, really seriously. Um, but since I became a reviewer, I've learned to take them more with a grain of salt because there's been a lot of books that I've reviewed that I've loved that everybody else in the world has not loved so much. And it's also been books that um, I haven't liked that, have been everybody else's darling. So I've begun to realize that, you know what, it's one person's opinion. And usually with newspaper reviews, most of them are, are thoughtful. And even if they're criticizing, it's usually something to consider. And then I either say, oh, gee, you know, maybe they have a point and I'll think about that. Or else I'll say, well, I don't really agree with them, but that's their perception. It's not mine. So those are a lot easier to do. It's, it's the ones that are on Amazon and Goodreads that always make me feel <laughs> when they're not good. And even when they are good, sometimes they're just, you don't know how they're thinking about reviewing something. The language is just so weird. Well, yeah, no, that's like that. Yeah, that's sort of interesting is that like when you weird, uh, you read a, a positive review, like a peer review or a customer review or whatever on like Amazon or Goodreads, but like the review itself is like really poorly worded, you know, or like, right. or like has all kinds of usage errors in it. Like, how do you feel about that? Like on the one hand, you're like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, they like my book, but like, they might also be like, you know, quasi illiterate or whatever. <laughs> I know. I, you know, I, I'm always glad to have the reviews just because I feel, well, it gets the words out and more people will read it. But a lot of the times, a lot of the comments are just, you know, they're so strange, and so you don't feel that sense of, oh, I really reached someone, they really understood what I was trying to do, or the book really moved them in the way that I hoped it would. So it's, you know, it's like you're really hungry for food, and then somebody puts a cake in front of you, and even though it's delicious, it's you're not getting the nutrients that you need and want, so it's not the most optimum experience for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then as far as like your uh, your criticism goes, the work that you do as a critic, like when you went into that, uh, were you just like you know a writer and an enthusiastic reader, and that was the base of uh, you know from which you started, or do you like because like that's something that's hard for me to imagine doing. Like I I don't think I would be very good at it for one thing, but then like I wonder about you know the ways in which you might prepare yourself. Like do you? Did you read a lot of theory? Were you, you know what I'm saying? Like, did you really read up right, on, on like right. what, what the function of a critic is? And did you get into it at that level? Or were you just like, yeah, I'm just going to read and give my honest opinion? Well, I was really nervous when I started. I mean, I, I started with The Globe. It was my, my first gig as a book reviewer. And I wasn't really sure what to do. And, I, you know, I read book reviews all the time. So I had a sense of what people were doing in reviews and what they weren't doing. And I felt that... I wanted to just sort of express my opinion, and if I was going to be critical, I wanted to be critical in a way that was going to be helpful. And to me, it was more a personal thing. My whole thing was I wanted to look at a book and figure out why isn't this book working and what could have been done to make it work or why is it working so beautifully and, and what can I think about that? Because I thought very selfishly that if I could figure that out, it would help me in my own writing, sure, sure. Um, which it which it has. And also I, I was really aware and I'm still really aware just how hard the publishing business is and how tough it is. And I wanted to... I wanted to help other writers um, by promoting their books, so I always try to just review books that I that I love. 
um, and that I want other people to love. And I wanted the reviews to be as personal as I could make them under the constraints of, you know, what other newspaper I'm writing for. Um, I just wanted to, you know, also have a dialogue with readers to say, this is a great book and you should read it and here's why and here's where it didn't work, but to do it in a really kind way. In fact, I've only, in my whole career, I've only written two bad reviews and I really regret it. It was my first gig at Boston Globe and I had this idea that nobody would take me seriously unless I was very critical. And I trashed this book and to this day, I feel horrible about it. What I feel book, horrible what book about was it? it. Oh, do I have to tell you? I, I really don't, don't want to. I I feel like I really don't want to because I feel like if that writer is out there, he probably knows who he is, and I'm deeply sorry. Okay. This is my apology. I mean, it was it was a really flawed book, but I was I was showing off. Um, and after that, I just you know there was one other book after that that I also gave a bad review, and then after that, I thought this isn't right. This really isn't right. I'm just showing off, and I I stopped doing that. Okay, so what? Like, do you have any choice over which books you re- you review, or do you get assigned books? Um, People Magazine always assigns me books, which I love because they always sign they always assign me books I never probably would have picked up myself. So I get to read really wildly, wildly and wild widely. Um, Boston Globe sometimes I pitch and sometimes they assign. Um, I'm also doing this little book column for um, Shoptopia, which is an online thing, and those I get to choose and. Um, I just, you know, I I tend to gravitate towards books that, if they're not assigned to me, I want the books that aren't getting press because I feel they deserve a shot out there. Um, So I'm really partial to debuts and books from smaller presses and just sort of quirky titles. Do you ever review friends' books? Do you ever get caught in like that? Those kinds of situations? No, you can't. You can't do that. They they make you. Um, I've also done reviews for Washington Post, and they all make you sign these contracts that say, you know, you're not supposed to have any contact at all with the people. Um, and if you do have any contact, even if you just said hi, how are you to someone at a party, you have to let them know. Um, so no, I can't. But what I do do for friends is um, I have this blog, and I'll do an interview with them, and I'll talk up the book, and I'll promote them that way. Okay, I got you. And they may, I, I'm surprised to hear they make you sign these contracts. I mean, I guess maybe. Oh I yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they want everything to be very above board and ethical and. Um, oh, that's good. That, that's encouraging. Yeah, so that's good. <laughs> that's that's. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. Well, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, how difficult the publishing business is and, you know, you've gone through, uh, all the different stages it seems like. And now pictures of you has been this like big, huge success. It's been a bestseller on multiple lists and it's still out there selling copies. I mean, you, uh, you know, you obviously didn't start this way. So can you, no. t- can you talk a little bit about like your road and yep. then, and then also I'm curious to know, like now that you've had this success, if you feel like any in any kind of concrete way, like you've made it, or is it still sort of like, you know, even at this oh, level, God. even even with a bestseller, are you still kind of like, you know, I, uncertain? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, all right, well, let me tell you this story. I, I always say I'm the poster girl of second chances. Um, I've had a terrible publishing history. I had. Four of my first publishers all went out of business and in very dramatic ways. Some of them went out of business the week my book was due to come out. Some of them went out of business the week after the book came out. And my books always just sort of they would get one or two really great reviews and then there was no sales for us, so the books would die. Um, my next two publishers who are still in business, um, 
They gave me three book deals, and they totally ignored me. They didn't return my calls. They didn't return my emails. They did no publicity whatsoever, no promotion whatsoever. I had to sort of do it all myself, and I had no sales. So there I was with pictures of you, and it was on contract to my publisher, and I was waiting, waiting, waiting. And they called my editor, called me up, and said, I'm sorry, we're not going to take this book. It's just not special enough for us. And I was sitting on the phone totally shocked. And they said, what do you mean it's not special? And she said, well, we just don't get it. We just don't get it. We just don't want it. So when I hung up the phone, I was hysterical because I thought, well, my career is over. You know, when you have had nine books and no sales and nobody really knows who you are and um, no one's returning your call, who's going to buy a book? Um, but I was really, really lucky in that I have a great agent, and she said, don't worry. And I have a lot of really great writer friends. And one of my writer friends was at Algonquin, um, Kate Malloy. Um, I forgot to tell her book. That's so bad. Um, but anyway, she's a great writer. And she said, you know what? Why don't you tell me briefly what your book's about, and I'll ask my editor at Algonquin. So I told her, and the editor liked it, and they bought the book. And the first thing they did is they called me on the phone, which was so amazing to me, because I never had a publisher call me back, let alone institute a phone call. And they said, come on in, we all want to meet you. And I walked in, and there were all these people, and they were all friendly and wonderful. And they said, we're going to change your life. And I said, yeah, okay. And wait, 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 wait. They actually said that? We're going to change your life? They actually said that. They said, we're going to change your life, we're going to change your career, and here's what we're going to do. And they laid it all out. And I was used to people telling me, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to make you a known person. And, you know, they never did anything. Well, Algonquin did everything and more. They were so amazing. They got this little book into four printings, like four, four months before publication. Um, they got it into like a Costco penny stick. Um, they were going to put it, when they told me they were going to put it in a paperback original, I was really sort of upset because I kept saying, you know what, it's not going to get reviews of the paperback. And they said, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry, we've got it all under control. And that book got like so many reviews that it was written up because of that in, I think it was in Shelf Awareness or, or someplace. They did, they never stopped promoting and supporting. They sent me on this huge tour. Um, they're literally, I call them gods and goddesses because they're just amazing. They're still promoting this book. Um, and I would, I would just, I just feel totally amazed that I'm where I am and I know full well because I've had all these other publishers who really weren't supportive or doing anything that so much of this is really due to everybody at Algonquin. It really is. Well, now, um, so, why, why are they so great? I mean, who, I mean, clearly they have a different business model than a lot of the they, different publishers. I mean, like who's, who's running the show over there and who's making this everybody, decisions? Everybody. They're really small. They're small. So everybody sort of knows what everybody's doing and they all support the books and they all know. I went to a, a, an Algonquin party and I remember some guy in marketing, I forget his, I forget who it was, was it in marketing. Craig Poplar? It, it might have been Craig. It was, you know, it was my first party there and I didn't know anybody and the names were just flying by me. Um, but Craig is great. But anyway, he said, how do you like it at Algonquin? And I said, oh, I really love it. I really love it. And he said, well, let me tell you the difference between us and other publishers. Other publishers will look at an author's sales and say, hmm, they're sort of falling. Let's just put this author aside and move on. We look at an author's sales and we say, oh, they're falling. Um, let's go look at other markets or let's do this promotion or let's, you know, let's try something new. 
Um, they really think outside the box. They tell their authors everything that's going on, and they let you be a part of it. Um, they're just and they fight for you. They fight for you. They're just they're just incredible. They're just incredible. I can't I can't say more for them. They literally gave me a career. And plus, they're all really nice people, and, and their writers are really nice. I've never been a publisher where I've known the other writers, and we all sort of socialize and talk back and forth to each other. And um, this sounds like this sounds like paradise. You know? It's paradise. It's I like there's like all. little elves running around or something. <laughs> yeah, I keep telling all my writer friends, you know, if you want to go to a different publisher, you should think about Gonquin. Um, in terms of whether I feel like I've made it or not. Um, it's sort of yes and no. I mean, I'm, I'm a deeply neurotic person, so I'll never really feel that I've, I've made it. I'll always obsess and be haunted and, you know, just feel anxious about stuff. But I do sort of feel that I have a, I have a writing career now. It's sort of like before this when people said, oh, you know, what do you do? I'd always say, oh, I'm a novelist. <laughs> I'd say it with a question mark. So because of all that's happened, I can say, oh, I'm a novelist. And it can be, you know, with a period or an exclamation point now. <laughs> I believe as, a, as, a, it. As, a, as opposed to what? As opposed to the question mark or like, you know, an ellipsis or something. Right, right. <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, so what are you working on something else for Algonquin? I mean, is there, is there, I am, I am. They bought my next book. Um, they bought my next book and I'm, you know, it's in revisions now. I mean, they're, they're looking at it now for the revisions and I started another book, which I hope they'll also take too. So, uh, you know, I want to just keep with them forever. You'd have to get a forklift to get me to leave. I was going to say, it's like you're just like clinging to their leg at this point. <laughs> just like, you know? Oh my God. I would never leave them. <laughs> Oh man! Well, that sounds fantastic. That sounds kind of like the dream experience. And then uh, when you know, after those initial meetings, and then you're going through the publication process or the pre-publication process, uh, and then uh, the book comes out, uh, did it immediately? I mean, because of all the groundwork that they had laid, did it immediately started to sell, or was there kind of a slow yep. burn? No, it it immediately it started to sell before it was even published, and it just kept building and building and building and building. It was almost every week there was a phone call or an email about something new that had happened, and I was completely flabbergasted. I I just I couldn't believe all the stuff that was that was happening. It was really like a miracle to me, and it's still happening. So um, does this happen with all? I mean, does this happen with most of their books, or is this like unique to yours? Because like I'm I'm always so fascinated with like how this happens. Like, what specifically was it that caused your book to sell prior to publication? Was it media think, coverage or? You know, I don't really don't know. I think it has happened with uh, with other authors because I spoke to a, a few of their other authors, and we all had sort of the same story where we felt abandoned by our previous publishers, and we had no sales, and we felt nothing was happening, and all of a sudden we got to Algonquin, and boom, there it was. Um, I think I, I'm not really sure how and why this this book took off. I I just think a lot of it had to do with. With them and with, um, you know, their their publicists are just amazing and they're also really nice people and everybody knows them and likes them. Um, all I would have to do is like mention a name of, you know, one of my publicists and people would say, oh, I know him or I know her. Or, oh, they're so great. And, you know, so they would want to talk to them and hear what they had to say. And um, 
I'm not sure what happened, but I'm just really glad that it did. Right, right. Don't ask too many, <laughs> don't ask too many questions. <laughs> wow, well, that's fantastic. So, uh, you know, in terms of your other books and your and your previous publishing experiences, like you know, uh, can you can you give a, a, a fuller picture of uh, why that didn't uh, succeed or didn't feel right, or you know what I'm saying? Like, what what is what is what is wrong? What's the diagnosis on that end? Well, part of it is is a feeling of you know no respect and not being an individual. I mean, with most of my former publishers. They never called me. They never even took me to lunch when I lived 20 minutes away. <laughs> um, they didn't answer my emails were never answered. Um, when I would ask, well, what's going to happen in terms of publicity? It would be, well, we're going to have a poster, and then there would be silence. Um, I had one publisher, and I asked if they were going to send a book to the Globe, Boston Globe for review, and I said, you know, this was before I was working for them, but I said, you know, I grew up in Boston, this would be perfect, and they said, no, the Boston Globe would never review anyone who wasn't from Boston, they won't review this book, and um, it was just that sort of attitude, and you know, I, I, I had to end up doing so much myself, and it's really hard to do when you're an author and you don't have support behind you, but a lot of times it makes you look like an idiot when you're doing this yourself instead of that the publicist should be doing, um, and it just created this feeling of hopelessness and depression, and I didn't have a lot of good editors sometimes, and I always felt like I was working really hard, but I wasn't necessarily being pushed to be better or to, you know, to grow as a writer. There wasn't that feeling that of excitement or anything. It was more, this is the product, this is our, you know, 2000 sneaker that we're producing and it's just going through the motion. So it just was depressing and horrible most of the time. Yeah, I mean, were you dealing with like real depression or was it just like kind of generally depressing? I mean, you know. Oh, no, it was definitely real depression. I mean, there was a lot of crying and, and hysteria and just ang- incredible anxiety, just amazing anxiety and a whole lot of shame, too. I mean, I would, it would be terrible because I know a lot of writers and I would see them, you know, where they would get reviews or they would get tours and they would say, oh, where are you going on your tour? And I'd didn't want to tell anybody, well, my tour is just what I can afford to pay for myself, which was usually, you know, around New York or maybe Boston, because <laughs> I could stay with my mom. <laughs> like the subway that tour. Was, yeah, take the subway tour. So, you know, I just felt really embarrassed. And I remember the party once, another writer said, well, you know, this is your eighth book. Like, surely you're getting you know, six-figure advances, and they're doing this and this and this for you. And I remember standing there stunned thinking, what, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) Any of that stuff. But I had to sort of drop myself and say, oh, yes, well, you know, it's a novel, and, you know, I'm I'm fine, I'm doing fine, but I I never could reveal what fine actually meant, which is nothing. Well, but, you know, with that many books published and so many of them, I mean, what, Pictures of You is your ninth book, correct? My ninth novel. Okay, yeah. okay. So, like, you've published eight books prior, and the publishing experiences for all of them has left something to be desired, more or less. Right. And you've right, been battling right. with depression, but like, clearly, the depression that you felt, or the uh, you know, the shame, or whatever you want to call it, wasn't enough to stop you from working. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of books. No, yeah. I'm also, as well as being, you know, a neurotic and anxious and insecure, 
I'm also sort of obsessive compulsive and I'm also really driven. I sort of feel that, you know what, this is, this is the one thing that I'm really passionate about and it's the one thing I really want to do in my life. And I'm not going to let anybody stop me do it. And I, before I got to Algonquin, I just felt, well, you know what, I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to write the best books I can and I'm going to find a way to make this work. Um, I'm not going to let them, you know, they can beat me up, but they can't crush me. I always had that drive that I was going to keep doing this. And where, where does it surely, come from? Where does it come from? Um, it comes from tortured family dynamics. <laughs> I grew up, I grew up in a household where, you know, my father just wasn't present. And when he was, he was sort of brutal. And my mother believed that, um, that my sister and I should, you know, just marry and be helpmates. And, you know, you, and I just, I just believe that I, I didn't want to be that way. I was sort of stubborn, and I was going to um, succeed no matter what. And I guess I just pushed myself that way. It's like from a very young age. From a very young age, yeah. Even when I was, you know, even when I was in grade school, I was always told. I just remember being told by teacher, teacher, you know, they'd say, "Well, what do you want to be when you grow up?" And I'd say, "Oh, I'm going to be a writer." And they'd say, "Well, that's a very nice hobby." Um, but maybe you can be a nurse or a teacher or, you know, it was always like sort of female centric jobs and it always used to make me really mad. And I thought, well, why should I listen to them when this is something that I really love to do? So I always had that sort of going for me and I think that sort of saved me. And this was in Boston? This was in, yeah, well, actually, it was in Waltham, which is this little working class suburb. Well, it's not so much anymore, but back then it was. It's a little working class suburb. And, you know, in my high school, only 1% of the kids, well, it's probably a little more, it was probably 5% of the kids went to college. And the rest, uh, the girls married and had babies immediately, and the boys went into the Navy um, or they pumped gas. So it was a really bad thing in my. Um, town to be smart at all. Um, plus, I was Jewish, which was really terrible. Um, so, Wait, I, was, was it really, I it was really a lot of anti-Semitism and stuff? Yeah, there was a lot of that. There was sort of a lot of that. Um, it was more, it was more against being smart actually than being Jewish. But there was a lot of both of that stuff going on. Um, so I just couldn't wait to get out. I just thought, well, this is going to be my ticket. Writing will be my ticket. I'll get out. And well, now, were you, were you like a, a nerdy kid or were you social? Like, how were you socially? I was, well, you know, there were like the three groups of kids in high school. There were the, um, there was jocks, of course, that they called the hawkers because that was the team. And then there were the rats, who were the people who were um, doing, who I guess they were sort of like the people who were doing drugs. And then there were the people who were charmingly called the faggots, who were the people who were sort of like hippie-ish, smart, or um, whatever else. And there were about 10 of us. And we always got threats, you know, to be beaten up. I mean, my big thing was I had a, one girl came up to me because she didn't like this embroidered shirt I had on. So she announced that she was going to beat me up at the end of the day. And the news spread like wildfire, and everybody was waiting for this big fight at the end of the day, and I was really scared. And I was really lucky because this girl um, phoned in a, a bomb threat shortly before the threat, and she was caught and arrested. So the fight never happened. What but, kind of school was this? <laughs> they, they, wait, they, like, go over these names again. There were the, the, the what's, the what's, and the, the rat, what? The rats, the rats were 
for the people who are sort of into drugs or, you know, and motorcycles. Then there were the hawkers who were sort of the preppy people. <laughs> and then there were the, anybody who was different was part of the people who were called the faggots. Um, and so that was the lovely group that I was, I was put into. <laughs> was this, a, was this a, public, a public high school in Waltham? Yeah, it was Waltham High. Waltham High, that was it. And wow. um, yeah, so it was it was really I mean, I used to have to hide my report card because people would be really irritated that I was getting all A's, which was not hard to do at that high school, but still they thought that was really a terrible thing. But see, that, that's that may, that's so counterintuitive. You would think in like a working class public high school type situation that if somebody were succeeding academically, that it would be like, well, it's good we have somebody who's striving and who's like, you know, on her way up. No, no, no. Instead, it's who do you think you are that you think you're better than we are? And then the whole thing would be to try to prove that you weren't better than they were because they could beat you up and you couldn't fight back. So. What is that psychology? I think, <laughs> I think that still exists. I think there's a lot of that. It you know? does. It does still exist. It's horrible. I don't know. I think a lot of it's fear. Um, I actually um, found on Facebook this one girl who made my life miserable in high school, miserable. She used to carry around a dictionary, and then she would wait until there was a lot of people around, and she would say, let's look up Caroline Levitt's name in the dictionary. Here it is, and then she'd find a word like witch or, you know, bitch or idiot or some other horrible name and point it out. So I found her on Facebook and I actually wrote her a letter and, you know, I was very pleasant. She was pleasant back. And then I said, do you remember like all the stuff that went on in high school? I said, I don't, you know, not blame you or anything. I just sort of want to know what was going on in your mind when you did that. And she never responded to me. I never heard from her after <laughs> I sort of confronted her. <laughs> Oh, you know that's actually really interesting. You know, because like to to want to know, like not not like necessarily to try to like elicit some apology, but just like out of like deep curiosity, like what the fuck were you thinking? You know? Right, exactly. Like, well, how could you do that to another person? I mean, I was struggling enough in that school without somebody else doing something like that to me. And the thing is, you never forget. You never forget all the stuff that happens in high school, especially if it's traumatic and terrible. And the teachers weren't much better. The teachers were just as bad. I would walk into a classroom and there would be a caricature of me um, on the blackboard and underneath it would say something like, faggot, doesn't wash her hair, or something like that. And the teacher would walk in and laugh. <laughs> and, you know, I would have no champions with any of the teachers. They just sort of felt, you know, well... You know, you have to learn to take it and, and deal with it. Wow. That's terrible. It's It, it was pretty awful. I mean, I, I laugh about it now, but at the time it was just, oh, it was horrendous. So what do you have any guesses, like, with regard to this girl that had the dictionary? Like, do you, I mean, I know she didn't respond to you, but, like, can you even make a guess at what was going on in her mind or why she would be motivated? Because... You know, you always think about people who are like that, and you must think, well, something isn't right at home, or their parents, are, think so. their parents are mean. But you know, you know, your house wasn't all roses either. Nobody's is, and right. you know, you weren't doing that kind of stuff. So it's like, what is it with people? I think for her, I mean, I, I somebody told me later on that she had a really hard time when she got out of school. That she had wanted to go to college, and nobody accepted her, and um, she, there were some money issues. So I don't know. Like maybe it was. 
sort of misplaced rage that she felt I had something she didn't have. I found out later that the girl who was supposed to beat me up, um, recently she had a sex change operation, so she must have been really unhappy in school, really confused and really um, tormented um, because to have any any sort of gender uh, feelings at, at a school like that would have been uh, it would have been a death sentence for her. So maybe she just so what, it wasn't it wasn't age. it wasn't like Glee. Is that what you're saying? No, it certainly was not. It wasn't okay. Um, I'm joking, but uh, you know, uh, I guess then like the next question is where did you go after high school? You clearly went to college, or I went to I I transferred around. I I loved picking up and going to different places. I got into Brandeis, okay. which unfortunately it was right in Waltham, but I lived at the school. I insisted that I had to live there. And I really loved it the first year. And then I started thinking, this isn't really like going away. I'm still in my hometown. There's still like Waltham High kids walking through the campus trying to beat up Brandeis students because they were Jewish or smart. And I thought, I want to go far away. So I wanted to transfer to California. And my parents refused. And I said, well, how far can I go? And they said, well, you can go in the middle of the country. So then I transferred to the University of Madison, um, at University of Wisconsin at Madison, and I lasted there six months. I didn't really like it so much. And then I went to um, Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, and um, it wasn't as great academically as Brandeis, but socially, I just loved it. It was like being in this whole huge city of smart kids, and there was lots to do, and I was on my own, and I, w- I loved it, but I wanted to transfer again, and my parents said, no, you can't. You have to graduate here. So I stayed there. Wow. So three different schools. Where did you want to transfer after Michigan? Um, I wanted to. I still wanted to try to. I figured that my parents might let me go a little further. I, re- I wanted to go to Berkeley. I really wanted to go to Berkeley. I wanted to try to go to Stanford. Um, I, I just really liked that whole feeling of going to a brand new place where nobody knows you and there's all this possibility and you can be whoever you want to be. And uh, I liked it. Yeah, I like that too. Like I, I always say like one of my favorite uh, sensations is disorientation. Like I love yeah, me too. I like like there's nothing I like better than to be in a place where I don't speak the language or like nobody knows. Like I love that. <laughs> me too. That, that's funny you say that because we um when when my son was five we wanted to take him on a vacation we chose we wanted to go to some place that was going to be disorienting and we ended up in Hong Kong and which was just great and we're trying to plan another vacation now and our criteria is it has to be weird it has to be exotic it can't look anything like new york <laughs> so we're we're doing some research on that now but i love that feeling that you know you're not in kansas anymore so anything can happen yeah yeah exactly so uh when you were in college what were you studying were you studying english or writing or i was studying english and i was studying writing and i you know it wasn't it wasn't very successful for me. I had this writing teacher at Brandeis that used to torment me. And, you know, he told me I was never going to be a writer. And he would like, you know, his class was so intense and so awful that somebody used to bring in Valium every day and we'd all meet a half hour before class and take it. You're shitting me. Literally, Who was this guy? Um, well, his name was Alan Lelchek. And at the time, he was really famous. He was like a a friend of Philip Roth's and he had this novel out and he was known because he said he was going to, I forget what he said. He said some remark that got Norman Mailer pissed off and Norman Mailer said he was going to beat the hell out of him or something. (laughs) And he was this mean, mean, he 
teacher and he would, you know, he'd set you up. He'd say, I really liked your story. We're going to discuss your story in this class. And I'd get all excited and then I'd come in and he'd be holding it by the very edge of it as though it was garbage. And he'd say, you know, there's one word in the story that is decent and the rest is crap. And that word is the, you know, end, signifying the end of the story. You gotta be kidding um, and then me. He'd, no, and then he'd rip it apart. He'd rip it apart. And, and he used to do things like tell you to come to his office and then he'd, you know, he'd, he'd tear you apart in his office. And there were so many days where I'd cry. I literally cried in his class a few days. And then when I'd come back to the class, he'd say, oh, you know, are your tears dry today, Miss Lovett? So it was, but again, it, you know, it, it, it made me mad. It made me feel like, you know what, I'm going to prove this bastard wrong. And when I published my first novel, I, I sent it to him with its first review, which was from the New York Times. I sent it to him saying, you know, you were wrong and this is what I this is what I did and he called me up and he said, Oh, you know, I, I, I knew you were gonna make it. I was just trying to make you angry, but I didn't really believe that. I think he was just sort of a little bit sadistic. <laughs> yeah, good God. That seems like really heavy, you know? Like that I, mean, I know that workshops can be brutal, but like I never had a teacher like that, you know. I never had oh, I mean, that's that's particularly brutal. That was particularly brutal, but you know, it 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 did make me angry. So yeah, that maybe. was something. <laughs> and, and I sort of like this image because I, I kind of like you know I see you as sort of shy. Were you sort of shy, or is that wrong? Oh, I was totally shy. I've, yeah. I've gotten since I've been since I've been like touring much better now. But yeah, I used to be totally totally shy and quiet. Yeah, so I can I just I like the idea of you triumphing over all this. You know. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, you're like I love it. <laughs> Uh, so did you ever have a mentor that really like, you know, once you get out of college or I guess, I guess when you were finishing college, have you had any mentors that were really helpful? You know, I haven't had any mentors until actually the past five years, I would say. And mostly that's because I was simply too shy. I just, you know, I, I was really housebound and I wouldn't really go out. I, I had a chance to get a scholarship to go to Breadloaf, and I turned it down because I was too frightened, which is something I regret every day now. And about five years ago, I decided, you know what, enough is enough. I'm really going to be more outgoing. I'm really going to make an effort. And I started to pick my way out of my shell, and I began to show my work to other writers and to be able to listen to the comments and not feel that it was an attack. Um, and to really be out there more. So I would say my mentors now are, you know, my, my writer friends. I talk about writing to all of them and we, you know, we help each other all we can. And there's just a huge level of support. Who's, who, who are some of your friends? Do you mind naming them? Oh, no, not at all. Um, Jonathan Everson is one of my friends. Um, Leora Skolton Smith, who has a book coming out, is one of my friends. Um, um, of course, my mind is going blank now because I keep thinking, oh, if I don't mention this friend or that friend, <laughs> right. they're going to be upset. Right. <laughs> I can't think of any of them now. Um, I, I'm really sorry. I can't. My mind has just gone totally blank. But no, it's cool. It's they're cool. all they're all wonderful writers, and you know we trade pages back and forth, and they've all been incredibly, incredibly helpful. Sure. Now, as far as like you know, getting your actual writing career started, like can you can you remember when you actually really dug in and started working? Like, what age were you? Um. Well, I was pretty serious about it. I 
I was pretty serious about it in college. I really wanted to. I mean, I had always been writing since I was a kid, and I had sent stories out to 17 when I was 16, and, you know, nothing ever really happened. And I, when I was in college, I started sending stories out, and I got nothing but, it was nothing but rejection, 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 rejection a million zillion times. And I just figured, well, I'll keep trying. And then it wasn't until way after I was out of college that I sent a story to the Michigan Quarterly Review and they wanted to buy it for $50. (laughs) I was was completely thrilled. And a week later, I got a letter from um, a New York literary agent. Um, It was my first agent. And they said, oh, we really like your story. We'd really like to represent you. And I said, oh, that's really cool. And she said, but, you know, we want you to write a novel. And that was it. So it started pretty easily. And it was just sort of the publishing history that wasn't so easy after that. Right. And how old were you when this happened? I was, I was 26. It was, so it happened pretty, it happened pretty fast for me. And I had, you know, I had the ridiculous idea that, oh, you know, I have an agent. It's going to be really easy from now on. (laughs) (laughs) It took a lot of years for that. But, you know, I also want to say that, you know, even though right now I'm in a really good place in my career, I'm fully aware that, you know, the bottom can can drop out at any time and you never know what's going to happen with publishing. So I don't have this sort of view that I'm going to just keep continuing going up and up and up. I, I still feel that you have to really work really hard and be really focused and, and all of that. So how do you work? Like, you know, do you work every day first thing in the morning? Are you a night person? What's the, what's the um, you know, the ritual? I, I work every day. I, um, I, my, I have a teenage son, so he gets up and goes to school in the morning. Um, my husband's also a writer, and he, he works at home. Uh, we have the top floor of our house is just offices. And I, I, the first thing I do is put on the computer and then I sit there and I work for anywhere from four to six hours depending on what the day is. And you know, sometimes we take breaks and we go to the movies and we play hooky or um but I try to do it every single day except the weekend because I feel that um since I tend to be obsessive compulsive it's better for me not to work every day. I have to sort of go out and see people and have fun and, you know, whatever. So so Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday. Yeah. Okay, because that's in, yeah, because I'm like in, in an everyday work cycle right now, and I'm like going back and forth in my head about whether or not that's a good thing. Like I'm seven days, and I'm like just, but I get up really early, and it's just like the first four or five hours of the day, and then. Yeah, I think as long as you're making time to have fun and do other stuff, then it's then it's fine. I just I have a problem where I I will get so obsessive that I'll forget about that. So. Yeah, me too. You know, I got to be better about like doing social things. Right. You know, I get so right. wrapped, I get so wrapped up in work. Right, exactly. Um, so where do you, and you live in Jersey or New York? I, I live in I lived in Manhattan for a million years, and then when I got married and we wanted to have a kid, and we wanted we were both writers, we figured we'd need at least a three bedroom. And in Man and I wanted to live. I was going to live in New York. I wanted to live and stay in Manhattan. And we looked at places, and they were so expensive. They were prohibitively expensive. So we looked in Brooklyn. But I wasn't wild about the subway ride from Brooklyn to New York. And then someone said, well, why don't you live why don't you in Hoboken? And I thought, are you kidding? I don't want to live in New Jersey. But we looked in we looked in Hoboken. It was only like a seven-minute path ride. And they had these amazing 
three-story brownstones that you could buy for like $80,000. Um, and they also had these like huge, um, you know, turn-of-the-century brick townhouses with fireplaces and rosettes and everything that were even cheaper. So When was this? You know, this was in the 90s. Now it's it's so expensive. You can't buy anything here. But back then, nobody wanted to live here, so it was really, really cheap. Right. So we bought this. We found this place that was ridiculous. It was so cheap, they were practically giving it away because it was so hideous. Um, on the outside, it was fine, but on the inside, it was all wood panels and had all this orange shag carpeting and lowered ceilings. But, you know, it was the price of a studio in New York, so we bought it. And as soon as we bought it, we pulled down the wood paneling, and there were marble fireplaces behind the wood paneling in, in just about all of the rooms. And we, when we took down the lowered ceilings, there were all these rosettes and chandeliers. What's and a rosette? I don't even know what a rosette is. Oh, a rosette is like, when you know, when you look up on the ceiling, sometimes in these old buildings, they have all this, it looks like intricate sculptured work on the ceiling. It's sort of three-dimensional. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just this really beautiful old stuff. So in the end, it was really lucky that the house was so ugly because if they had known all this stuff was there, we probably couldn't have afforded it even at that cheap price. Wow. So it's a big place. It's beautiful. It sounds nice. Yeah. It's actually it's actually the first home I've ever had. I was I was really afraid of moving to a house because I thought it was, you know, I was domesticated. <laughs> So for a long time, I wouldn't call it a house. I just kept calling it a... I couldn't call it a brownstone because it wasn't brownstone. So I called it a brickstone or whatever. But <laughs> now I call it a house because that's what it is. Does it, have a, does it have a yard? It does. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a city. Hoboken is a city. So the backyard is really teeny, teeny, tiny. It's, it's like big enough for like a little table and chairs and a little bit of a garden. But yeah, it does. It does. Wow. Okay. And you like living in New York? I mean, you're, you're, you're staying there. That's it. Well, if we had, you know, if we win the lottery, if I get a movie deal, I think we'd probably buy a place in Manhattan, but we both really love the house and it's, it's been a really great place to raise a kid because it's been a whole lot cheaper than it would have been raising a kid in Manhattan. Sure. Sure. Well now what about, and what about movie deals? Like, have you had any, I mean, some of your books have been optioned, uh, right? Or what's going on there? Yeah. My, my life in the movies, I, I've had quite, a, I've had about four options and one of them was through Paramount and then there was some kind of a director strike. So that was dropped. Another one was just about to go to principal photography. And then the producer ran off with, the other producer, and they sort of vanished in thin air, and nothing happened from that. Um, there's a there's a lot of interest with pictures of you, but so far, nothing. You know, nothing is written down. Um, my feeling about Hollywood, like everything else, is you know, you 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 hope for the best and you wish for the best, but you have to be really bold and take things into your own hands. So I, you know, I have a film agent and I have a film manager out in L.A. who's advising me. And I've been, you know, I, I try to find directors and producers that I like, and then I write to them, and I tell them who I am and about the book, and I pitch myself. And oh, wow, you do that? I do that, and you know what? It works. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> to my surprise, it works. It works. They've, every single person has been really, really nice and very receptive, and people are usually honest. Sometimes people say, well, you know, um, I got through to Sarah Polly, and she 
she has movies going on until the year 3000. So she was very nice. She said, I just don't have time. And other people have said, yeah, you know, I'll take a look and we'll see what happens. And a lot of times they're interested, but they just don't, you know, to get a movie made, you really need, you need to have money and you need to have a whole package and connections. And a lot of times some of them don't have this. So I've done that. And my big thing this year also is that I'm going to apply to Sundance Screenwriting Lab. Um, to try to see if I can make things happen that way. So um, I'm very Don Quixote, but I, I feel say. like I might as well try. You know, I have nothing to lose but my pride, and that's been gone a long time. So <laughs> Yeah, right. Got, <laughs> got rid of that early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, and, uh, and what is your agent, like your film agent, when you decide to go out there and sort of take the bull by the horns and make these uh, – contacts and write these letters are you funneling this through your agent or are you just doing it yes yes i am yes i am i told i well i have you know i have my literary agent and my film agent are the same and i told them i was going to do that and their feeling about it is you know you can do whatever you can do but just make sure that when you write to them you say i'm represented i'm represented by so and so and so and so and then it all goes if anything happens then it goes through them right so whenever anything starts to happen i say okay you have to talk to my agent now or my manager and um and that's what people do. So it's all it's all through them. I'm just sort of doing a lot of the um, legwork. A lot of the agent work. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I mean, I, I you know, and maybe I'm wrong, but I know they do the negotiate, uh, you know, the negotiations. But it would seem like agents should be submitting. You know. Well, they are. They are. I mean, I have a I have a I have a fabulous literary agent. And I have a great film agent, and my manager is superb and they do do a lot of that stuff and they are doing that but i just i can't leave it alone i'm i'm you know sort of a, this is my new obsession so i feel if i'm not doing something then there's this vacuum that needs to be filled somehow right so. no, i get that i get that because i'm kind of the same way like you know you you're sitting there sort of idle and you're like i could be helping the cause you know right right why right. leave why leave, it, why leave it to an agent who's got like you know 50 clients or whatever it is right right exactly Exactly. So, besides Sarah Polly, like who else have you? How many are we talking? Who else have you written to? Oh God, um, um, God. So far, I just sort of started recently, so it's only been about like ten people. Um, are these are these letters? I, are they emails? Um, usually emails. Usually emails. Or I, I never call. I never call because I feel that's too intrusive. But I figure an email. You know what? If people don't want to even open it, they don't have to. Right. So you're not being as irritating as if you call somebody up and put them on the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. And then like it's always like because those aren't necessarily easy letters to write. Like that's the kind of letter that I would like just completely obsess over and freak out about. You know, just the writing of it and getting the language. Uh, and the tone, uh, you know, done properly. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you worry about that stuff? I do, but you know what? No, I don't. Because when I do emails, I feel that, you know, I feel like I learned when I had all the really bad publishers where, you know, they weren't really promoting me and I had to promote myself. I learned that the kind of emails that would get me a response when I was trying to write to get reviews for myself would be the ones that were really honest and sort of, you know, self-deprecating where you would start, you know, off saying, look, I know you probably want to get this email as much as you want to get root canal, but this is who I am and this is what I'm hoping and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote the same kind of letters to all these directors and producers because I figured, well, I have nothing to lose by being honest. And also I figured they get so many of those letters that are 
written in the correct way, and I wanted mine to sort of stand out. Right. Um, and it seems to be working, so I'm yeah, keep yeah. doing it. Uh, yeah, you, clearly you're good at it. Like I, the problem with me is that like I would try to be funny, or I would try to be too like jokey or irreverent or something, and then. That can get difficult. That can get to be uh, uh, dangerous because then you're writing a letter right. that that seems really sort of casual to a person you don't even know. And you know, right, you know what I'm right. saying? I've fallen into that right. trap before. Right, and I think also like you know, always in a letter, I always say like I'm represented by you know this person, and this is my film agent, and this is my film manager. So that sort of makes it more. That gives it a little bit more weight. So they think, well, you know, you're not just an idiot. And in the in the the subject line, I never write, you know, pitching a movie or whatever. I always write, well, for the movies, I always write from New York Times um, best-selling novels because I figure, oh, maybe that'll make them interested. And when I was trying to get reviews, I never would say from novelists. For that, I would always say from book critic because I figured, well, you know, maybe as a professional courtesy or out of curiosity, they they'd open it up. So I would say the subject line is probably the most important thing in any email and getting it open. Okay, so in the subject line you were putting from New York Times bestselling author or from Book Critic, from Boston Globe Book Critic, correct? Yeah, when I was trying to get reviews, I would say it was from a book critic. For the movie things, I would just say from New York Times bestselling author. Because if I put in something that I was going to pitch, these people get like nine zillion pitches all the time. Right. And there's no reason for them to open up another one from someone they don't know. Yeah, and then then you're like obsessed because like then I'll be sitting there with like a subject line when I'm writing an email like that or something, you know, in in a similar vein. And I'll always be like, maybe if I just put like, hey, in the subject line. (laughs) It'll be like sort of, you know what I'm saying? That's like, I can. Right, yeah, right. Totally screw right. So you it up. Want, yeah, you just want something like different that's going <laughs> to catch their attention. Yeah. Well, uh, before we go, you know, pictures of you, it's out there. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, briefly about how, uh, you know, how you came to write it? Like, what was the genesis of it and the writing process? How long did it take you? Where did it come from? Do you have a sense of okay. it? Okay. Like, Clearly. Yeah, I do. I do. I was, I was, I'm, I, besides being neurotic, I'm also really, really phobic. Um, and one of my biggest phobias is cars. I, I have my license and I get my license renewed every five years, but I haven't driven a car since I was 16 because I, I keep having this feeling that if I drive, I'm going to cause an accident and kill somebody. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I think about it a whole lot. And, and before I started writing pictures of you, I was having problems where I would get in a car and as a passenger and I would start thinking, what if the car crashes? And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should write about this. And so I started writing about this car crash. And then um, as I was writing and all the other sort of issues came in, you know, how do you really know the people in your life? And and in the middle of it, I started thinking about this this incredible 1950s movie, Aaliyah Kazan movie called uh, Splendor in the Grass, which was Warren Beatty's first movie that just happened to be on TV. And the movie knocked me out. And it, it was about, you know, two people who were battling sexual repression in the 50s and they grow up and one of them has a nervous breakdown at the very end of the movie you see these two people come back together and you want them to be together and they can't they just can't for some reason and the movie just sort of breaks your heart at the end and I thought oh I want to I want to try to do that to have an ending where you want one thing to happen but you know that it can't but you still don't really know what's going to happen in the future and so a lot of that came into the book uh, the book took me about 
three years to write. I, I rewrote it three times and gave it to my agent, and my agent is also a superb editor. So wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you there. You rewrote it three times. Does that mean like wrote it once and then started completely over again, wrote it again? Yep. Yep. That's exactly what it means. Yep. So, so my agent, um, Gail Hoffman, who's also like this fabulous, fabulous editor, said, I really love the book, but you have to rewrite it. So she gave me all these comments and I rewrote it, sent it back to her. And she said, you know, I love it even more and you still have to rewrite it. So I rewrote it again and she did the same thing again another time. Um, and you trust and, her and you clearly trust her. Oh, I trust her. her. Yeah. She's really brilliant and everything she says sort of just pushes you to go deeper and you can see that the book is getting better. So whatever she told me to do, I was definitely going to do. Um, so I must have rewritten the book about five times by then. And then when it got to Algonquin, it was the same thing. They said, we really love the book, but we want you to rewrite it. Um, and again, it was I, I didn't mind. I actually loved the rewriting process because my, my editor there is she's just so brilliant. And I could see every suggestion she made was, oh, my God, why didn't I think of this myself so i was very happy to do it okay so and, and again you're starting with a blank page yep oh yep. my god well pretty much pretty much yeah yeah and who's your editor at algonquin andrew miller okay yeah, and like you know that's a i always say this but that's a skill set all unto itself you know to be it's a, a totally gifted is. editor to be a gifted editor like a really really gifted editor i think is is uh is rare and um you know, valuable as being a really gifted writer. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, it, it totally is. It totally is. Because she sees things that I just don't see. And sometimes it's just a question that she'll ask, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, <laughs> you know, I forgot to do this, or, yeah, I definitely should do this. And so it's it's, it's just a wonderful working relationship. I, I really love it, and she's just fabulous. Wow. Well, it's been uh, it's been wonderful to talk with you and to hear about all this, and uh, I'm excited for you. You know, to see pictures of you, uh, you. doing so well, and to and to hear uh, the excitement in your voice. I know that it sounds like you've landed in a good spot. Oh yeah, it's it's been just amazing. Thank you so much for this. This has been really really fun. All right. Well, Caroline, take care. You too. Okay, then, there we have it, folks. That's the program. That's Caroline Levitt for the hour. Go get pictures of you. It's available now from Algonquin Books. If you want to find her on the web, you can go to carolynlevitt.com. Levitt is spelled L-E-A-V as in Victor, I-T-T. Uh, you can follow her on the Twitter. Her handle is at Levitt Novelist, and she's also got a Facebook page. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page, and if you want to email me, it's letters at otherpeoplepod.com. That's the address. Be sure to check out the nervousbreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can follow it on the Twitter at TNB Tweets. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Check out killrockstars.com. And uh, just a friendly reminder, if you like the show, uh, and yes, this means you right now, you, please take two minutes of your life and go over to iTunes and give the show a good rating and a nice review. It actually does help the cause. And I would certainly appreciate it. It's an easy thing to do. So uh, other closing thoughts uh, regarding this whole homeless woman and my dog and uh, that whole conundrum. Uh, I think I'm going to let myself off the hook on this one. You know, I think I did, uh, you know, the right thing or, or some, you know, some semblance of the right thing. Because, uh, you know, the more that I think about it, the truth is that even if the woman wasn't homeless, uh, I'm not really that into it when someone makes out with my dog, you know. 
and and I'm not that into it when, you know I'm not that into it when people make out with dogs. Period. You know, I, like I can understand like a lick on the face. I can understand that. I love dogs, but uh, you know these people who like lick back or or who sit there and let a dog lick their face or you know lick their mouth for an extended period of time. Uh, there's something strange about that, you know, especially when it's not your dog. You know, like I would never make out with somebody. Uh, somebody else's dog. And and if I did, I would be presentable. I can guarantee you that. I'm not going to be filthy and strung out on crack and making out with somebody else's dog. You have my word on that. I'm trying to be a man of honor, trying to respect people's personal boundaries. Uh, thank you for listening. Please do not make out with strange dogs. Please be nice to homeless people. Uh, you know, don't use the Jedi mind trick on homeless people unless you absolutely have to. Okay? Do as I say, not as I do. These aren't the droids you're looking for.